Good morning. Uh, if you got a Bible, go to Numbers chapter 10. We'll be there in just a moment. Um, if you're watching this later on, on demand. And so one, if you're watching online in real time, I love that you're here. I love that you're checking us out. But if you're watching on demand later on and you didn't see Scott's introduction, don't be freaked out. Like the stream didn't mess up. Like Paul didn't grow a beard or anything like that. Like I'm just a different guy. And then if you're looking in the bulletin and you're like, he keeps calling him Mike Johnny. Is that like Billy Bob? Is he from the South? I am but it's not. Um, my last name, which is spelled D-S-A-N-E, is pronounced Johnny, and it's from Ghana, West Africa. And so that, that's a little bit of what's going on. And then I want to take a moment and just say thank you to a few people. Uh, one, I want to thank my wife and my kids. They're, they're not here with me this morning. Uh, my wife works full-time in Bible translation, is a full-time mom, and is an overtime rock star. Like, she just handles it. Uh, and then I've got two little boys, Apollo and Julius. Apollo's five. Julius will be two a week from tomorrow. Uh, Julius doesn't know exactly where I'm at right now, other than he, like, woke up this morning and was like, hey, you're, you're supposed to get me out of my crib and give me food. Why are you not here? Um, Apollo, on the flip side, knows I'm gone and, like, has been sending me messages that he misses me. And so it, they make a sacrifice so I can do this. And I recognize that. And I'm just grateful that they let me do it. Uh, and then I want to thank you. Uh, I, I want to thank you for the privilege. I recognize standing here preaching the word of God to you is a sacred privilege that your church has trusted me with. I want to steward that well. But I also want to be grateful for the fact that you have allowed me to do it. So I'm grateful for all of that. Uh, let me say one more thing. Uh, if you're the type A type of person that when the bulletin came out this week and you saw that the message was going to be in Numbers 10 and you grabbed your Bible and started reading through it and you were like, this dude better be good because it's about to be rough. Uh, I don't know that I could promise you that it's going to be good, but I hope that the Lord meets you in it. And so let me, let me talk about it this way. Maybe that'll help frame why I think this text is, is suitable for us this morning. Uh, and so back in the year 2000 in London, uh, there was a bridge that was uh, opened up called the Millennium Bridge that was built over the Thames River. It was a footbridge, um, but it wasn't just a bridge to get from point A to point B. It was actually meant to be this artistic architectural ma masterpiece. Uh, Jesse Wright, who writes in the book, uh, The Church of Facebook, talks about that the architect of the bridge, the original designer, grew up reading F Flash Gordon comics. And so what he built was meant to look like what he imagined the future could look like. And so for several years, 200 engineers worked to build this suspension bridge. But unlike the Golden Gate Bridge, which is near you, that um, is a vertical cables that you can clearly see are suspending the bridge. This was built where all of the cables either came under or to the sides of the bridge. And so if you saw it from a distance, none of the cables got in the way. You could just see the beauty of the architecture of the bridge. So in June of 2000, they opened up the bridge to hundreds if not thousands of people to walk across into this, uh, this epic moment of artistry and architecture for London. And as they did, as people began to walk across the bridge, the bridge began to sway back and forth. Now, I, you don't know me, but here's what you need to know about me. I can't swim and I'm afraid of heights. And so this is my two greatest nightmares combined. Just throw some snakes in there and like I'm done. And so the people are starting to sway on this bridge. And so to try and compensate for the swaying, people end up what they call looked like they were ice skating on concrete. And so you've got hundreds, if not thousands of people with different walking gates and different styles. And all of a sudden they're all doing the same thing at the same time. And that's actually a physics phenomenon called spontaneous order. It's when this greater force begins to impact individuals and causes them to move in such a way that instead of them doing their individual thing, they all of a sudden act, move, think, and walk like they're one. And so 
I don't think that just happens in physics. I think that happens in culture. There are monocultural moments where all of a sudden everybody's attention, focus, conversation is on the same thing. And so let me throw one out. And this may not be good to throw out because when I was on the plane flying here, I read about this person, the guy who invented the dress that we all spent several weeks trying to figure out whether it was white and gold or blue and black. Um, He got in trouble for potentially murdering somebody. So it's probably a bad illustration. But it was a monocultural moment of over and over again, everybody was saying, No, what's wrong with you? That dress is black and blue. Or maybe more seriously, when you look at generations, generations are often defined by these monocultural moments. Boomers were the children that were born as a result of World War II. Generation X were those that were coming out of that, but their lives were often shaped by things like the Desert Storm War that shaped the way that they saw the world around them. Uh, millennials, I'm a grandpa millennial, I'm like the oldest possible millennial. Um, we are old enough that our world, that, that there's this moment that we cannot forget, this monocultural spontaneous order moment of September 11th, 2001, that shaped the way that we see the world. And even Generation Z um, are old enough to have been shaped by uh, what the COVID pandemic did and shaping the way that they think and see and interact with the world. We've all experienced monocultural moments. And this morning, I don't want to just talk about this kind of monocultural, spontaneous order uh, in the negative. I actually want to talk about it in the positive. What would it look like if by the spirit of God and the power of God, that the people of God were focused and moved as one as he moved? So here's my main idea this morning. In God's plan to reveal his rule and reign to an unbelieving world, every one of his people plays a part. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little bit of time this morning and we're going to walk through uh, just understanding the book of Numbers in general. And then in verses 11 through 28 of chapter 10, we're just going to see that everyone plays a part. And then in verses 29 through 36, we're going to see this important invitation that's being made in the middle of that. Let me pray and then we'll jump in. So Father, thank you. Thank you for these brothers and sisters that I have the privilege of standing before and sharing your word, praying that as you reveal your rule and reign, that as you move, that we will move alongside you. And so in your grace, would you show us by the power of who you are that you can be trusted to be followed after? And would you invite those who may not yet know you to know your goodness? It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. Before we jump into the text, I I, I wanna give you a bit of a view of what we're going to be talking about in just a few moments. And so what you're gonna see on the screen is it's going to be an image of uh, the, the encampment of the people of Israel. And so when we read through these verses, or if you've already cheated and read ahead, there's gonna be talking about tribes being aligned. And so the tribes that are closest to you, I believe are the tribes in the east, across from them, the west, south, north. And then uh, in the center, maybe the, the, the inner circle, if you will, will be the individual leaders and their families like Moses and Aaron or uh, Gershon and Merari. And so this just gives you a visual depiction of what's going on. And then right in the center of God's people is the tabernacle of meeting and the cloud of God's presence. And so I just, I just wanted you to get a sense of what what we're going to be talking about. And so you can refer to this mental image as I read. But before we jump into the specific text, I just want to talk about numbers a little bit. Again, I mentioned that if you looked ahead and began to read this text, you were like, what are we doing this morning? Because when you read your Bible, there are two things that you probably read and be like, I don't know that I need to know this. One, when you read genealogies, because you don't really care whose baby daddy is who. 
it doesn't mean much to you, or census information. When it's telling you how many people are in a tribe or in an army or in an arrangement, it just feels like, okay, these are a bunch of numbers, math is hard, let's keep them moving. And so numbers is literally called that because people saw the amount of census data that's in the start of the book and called it that, but that's actually not the original Hebrew name. The original Hebrew name was in the wilderness because in the midst of the wilderness, God is leading and speaking to his people. And there's actually some stories from numbers that are famous that if you're familiar with the Bible, you may know. For instance, the story of Balaam and his donkey. Now, the story of Balaam and his donkey, I'm not gonna go into it. I'm sure there's a joke there about donkey speaking versus Balaam, just imagine that I said it and giggle. But like Balaam and his donkey is one of those famous stories. There's the story of Joshua and Caleb being the only two spies that believed the Lord enough to believe they could enter into the promised land. That's a, a famous story from the book of Numbers and even some sad, sad stories like Moses striking the rock a second time when the Lord told him not to strike the rock. And so there's stories that you may know that are part of the fabric of the people of God going from being in Egypt to being in the promised land. And maybe the best way to describe the book of Numbers is that you're seeing the Lord be faithful even when his people are rebellious. And everything that you see before chapter 10 is actually this beautiful picture of they're finally getting it right. Like as you walk through Numbers, chapters one through nine, it's like, hey, there's, there's not a lot of mistakes here. Like they finally figured it out. Like they've stopped complaining. They know how to do sacrifices to atone for their complaining. And now they're getting ready to move and they're on, to, they're on the right page. And this chapter is a sliding doors moment where we catch them at the climax of their unity and focus before they go into a cycle of rebellions that show that they haven't figured it out at all. So with that in mind, Verse 11 of chapter 10 would start this way. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud settled down on the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies and over their company was Nishan, the son of Amminadab. And over the company of the tribes of the people of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zuar. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. So again, this is the, the eastern portion, the, the part of that picture that was closest to you. And these were the ones that set out first. They were the, the leaders of the pack. Then we would hear next, starting in verse 17. When the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon, the sons of uh, Merari, who carried the tabernacle set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies. And over their company was Elazar, the son of Shadur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Simeon was Shimuel, the son of Zerishadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people was Eliasaph, the son of Duel. And these were the southern tribes. And, and again, if you're looking at that map, they would come back around and they were actually picking up the elements of the tabernacle and they were leading next. Then we'll see uh, the Kohathites, the other group that were in the center and the tribes that would follow them. Then the Kohathites, starting in verse 21, carrying the holy things. And the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim set out by their companies. And over their company was Elishama, the son of Emahud. Over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Pedahazur. 
And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abidon, the son of Gideoni. Then the, tri- then the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps set out by their companies. And over the company was Ahazer, the son of Amishadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Okran. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ahur, the son of Anan. This was the order of the march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. You encouraged this morning? Amen. And so we're seeing now the Western tribes and the Northern tribes filling in this movement of the people. But let me just ask a really basic question that maybe all of you are thinking, why? Why would this amount of effort be put into the arrangement of the camp? Why would this amount of text be given towards this? Why even the exactness of the timing? And I actually think it's really important because I mentioned before that it is a high water moment of unity and focus, but just think about what's happening. And in fact, specifically, the reason that the writer tells us what's, when this happens is because you need to know that it's a year, about a year after the Passover that celebrates the, the first Passover. So I, Exodus chapter 14, they come out, they go into the wilderness a year after that. They celebrate the Passover to remember what the Lord's done. This is another year and a month after that. And so they've been sitting here for a year in this arrangement. The arrangement of their camp was such that in the center of their focus was the tabernacle meeting and the presence of God. And so every morning when people got out of their, walked out of the front of their tent and they looked across the way, that they got to see the presence of God right there in the midst of them. Not only did they get to see the presence of God, but they also couldn't see their across town neighbor without seeing through the presence of God. That's not the point of my message this morning, but just think about how differently we would treat our neighbors if the way that we primarily saw them was through God's presence. Just think about how you would deal with the neighbor that always steals your trash can on trash day if you saw them primarily through the presence of God. Some of you don't look at your neighbor if they're in the the room stealing your trash can. But there's this this reality that God's presence was so central to who they were that even the way that they were able to see one another came through the centrality of his presence. But I'm also intrigued by just the reality that when people are anywhere long enough, they become used to it. In fact, if you rewind back to the book of Exodus, after they come out, after the Lord delivers them walking through the Red Sea and seeing the hand of the Lord, then close up the sea and close up their enemies, they don't get too far into the wilderness and they say, Moses, did you lead us out here because there's not enough graves in Egypt? You know, the food back there was awesome. Parenthetically, I don't care how good the food is, slavery isn't worth it. But because they had been there so long, they were used to it. And so they deemed it to be good. So imagine how easy it would have been to get used to every day in the middle of your people. The presence of God is sitting there as a cloud and every morning for over a year at this place where you've encamped that you're seeing God's presence amongst his people. Imagine how easy it would be to stay and then the Lord begins to move and get up and they, in a moment of submission, unity and focus, begin to get up and move and to move that many people that quickly that doesn't happen by accident that happens when everybody plays a part 
And so the writer is being really specific in saying that these tribes were responsible for leading the way and these tribes were responsible for grabbing the tabernacle and these tribes grabbed the holy things and this tribe played the rear guard to make sure that nobody attacked them from behind. But there was no tribe that that was just, I'm just a passenger along for the ride. They were part of what the Lord was doing. I think that's important because in something like the church, I think there is a danger where oftentimes when we think that God's going to move, it's going to be people with vocational titles that the Lord uses when he's actually looking at all the human partners to play a part in what he's trying to achieve. And so they begin to follow the Lord's movement as he gets up and goes and they obediently follow after playing their part But then if that feels in and of itself slightly strange, the next part of the text just feels like it's completely out of place. Verse 29 would say this. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you for the Lord has promised good to, to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And he said, please do not leave us for you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we do to you. So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day and whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. Now, I want to orients you to, if it's strange that we're getting specifics about a camp, it feels more strange that we're seeing this side conversation with Moses and Hobab. Uh, In fact, there's some controversy over who Hobab is, and some of it has to do with punctuation, because it's like, okay, is Hobab supposed to be Moses's father-in-law, so therefore the description is Hobab, the the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses's father-in-law, and that's a descriptor, he's also the father-in-law, or is it saying Hobab, comma, who happens to be the son of Ruel, who, comma, happens to be the Midianite who is Moses' father-in-law. I I walked you through that exercise of grammar to say I don't really know and I don't think it matters that much. But what is clear is that this guy is not part of the people of God. And so why, A, would Moses slow down and say, hey, before we go, I want to invite you to come with us because the Lord's been good to us and we want the Lord to be good to you. Let's take it a step further. Why would he even say, like, why is it even important that we know about this person being a Midianite? So let's rewind back to Exodus chapter three. Now, I realize you guys were in Exodus for about a year, and so chapter three was about a year ago. Um, But in Exodus chapter three, it's uh, it's this climactic moment where Moses has just tried in his own power to deliver his people. And I love that, because the way that we talk about it is we talk about it like as a crime of passion. Like he got angry, freaked out and killed the dude. But when you actually read the text, he looked around, saw nobody was looking, killed the guy, buried him. So this is murder one, not murder two. It was premeditated. And he's trying to portray himself as part of the people of God, part of Israel, but his own people reject him. 
And so then he flees and he ends up at a well watching the daughters of Jethro trying to get some water and they're being attacked. And so he steps in and he saves them. And when they go back and tell their dad, hey, this Egyptian saved us, well, now we've got a conflict. Are you a Hebrew or are you an Egyptian? Because it seems like you are somehow talking like an Egyptian and dressing like an Egyptian and acting like an Egyptian. I imagine he walked like an Egyptian. Like I imagine that when people looked at him, they assumed that he was Egyptian. And so what identity do you have? You certainly don't seem like you're fully in being the people of God. And yet Jethro welcomes you in. And now all these years later, they're getting ready to walk into God's promise. And he looks at what seems to be his brother-in-law and says, hey, I want to invite you into the goodness that God has given me. Right here in the wilderness where God found me and showed me who he was and promised me that he would rescue and redeem, that he would give me his covenant name, that I would know fully who he was, that he invited me in. And now I want to invite you into the same thing. And maybe you're sitting there like, well, wait, 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 wait. That sounds good, but how does this guy get to be in and not just get to be in, but play a part in what God's doing? Because when he says, nah, Moses, I'm not going. I'm going back home. Moses says, no, you, you ha- your Bible doesn't read that way. That's the Mike Johnny version. Um, when, when he says that to Moses, Moses says, no, we need you that you would be our eyes in the wilderness, that you would tell us where we need to camp, that you're giving him a job that actually hangs on the balance of the security of the people. And this dude is new. He didn't know where the light switches are yet, much less how to worship the Lord. And so for some of us, that feels offensive that somebody so new would be given a place in the people of God. But I don't think it's just a numbers narrative. I think it's a biblical narrative. I think over and over again, God's inviting people in to come near to him. And when they come near, he can take their giftedness and say, I'm also going to use this for my glory. Let me give you an example from the New Testament. The apostle Paul is writing to a young man named Titus who's meant to set order in a church on the island of Crete. And if you don't know anything about the island of Crete, maybe you just need to know how Paul would quote the way that they talked about themselves, that they would call themselves liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, maybe you're like, oh, maybe those are pet names. I dare you. Next year on Mother's Day, just write into your mom, love you, mom, you liar, evil beast, lazy glutton. And if you survive that moment, you can come tell me about it. Those aren't compliments. Those aren't pet names. Those are character assessments of people who, are, who didn't believe in the truth, who were ruled by their desires, and who would give themselves over to what was evil. And so all throughout the book, Paul is saying to Titus, set order in this way, set elders like this, find leaders amongst men, amongst women like this, tell households to operate this way. And then he gets to chapter three, and then he writes some words that feel like maybe they don't belong in the book that you should submit to all authority, that you should treat people with gentleness and and kindness, and that you should be good to all people. And here's the tension with the text. I looked it up in the Greek. That word all means all. And so it's as if Paul hears the question that all of us are feeling, how are these people going to be included in what God's doing with all the things that they've done? And in Titus 3, 3, he would say this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
And I want you to hear the two levels of brokenness. There's this vertical dimension of brokenness that we were, uh, we were dragged around by our passions, that we were foolish and disobedient, that we did not honor the Lord in the way that we live. We sound a whole lot like Cretans. And then that we also could not get along with others. And so we live with malice and envy that we didn't just hate other people, but people hated us back and probably rightfully so. And then he would say, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to hear what he's saying. Like, we didn't get where we are because we figured it out. We didn't get where we are because we started doing the right things at the right ratio with the right frequency and we're able to do it long enough. And the Lord said, you know what? I need you on my team. Come on. But the reason that we are where we are is because of the goodness and loving kindness appearing to us when we least expected us, inviting us into the goodness of God, the mercy of God being poured out on us and the spirit not just washing us because you can go home and use all the Tide Pods that you want. And the thing that is dirty may not be dirty, but it's still old. But not only did he wash us, but he renewed us, that he made us a whole new thing, that we are not just a cleaner version of the old broken thing, but by his spirit, he has made us new. And he did this by richly pouring out because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we might have hope and life eternal. And if that's true for us, how much more is it true for those around us that are in the same state that we used to be in? No wonder Moses can say to Hobab, hey bro, I've, I, I stood here just like you, outside of the people of God, not knowing his goodness and his grace. And I just want to tell you the goodness that God's offering to us, he's offering to you, come play. And then he would finish the text this way. Verse eight, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Hear him saying that if it's true and people believe it, that they're not just spectators anymore, but now they get to devote themselves to the work. And so like Paul would say, like Moses would exemplify, that maybe you're sitting here on the outside thinking, man, I've, I've done too much and I'm far too broken. Well, it's not going to be because you figured all the things out. And all of a sudden the Lord would say, hmm, you know what, you, you pass the 90-day trial period, you can be in. But instead, that the Lord would say that I'm offering you my mercy, but I'm also offering you an opportunity to be part of what God's doing. It's what you heard last week in the book of Acts, that there is a seat at the table for you under the mercy of God. Maybe you're online and you're watching and you're trying to figure out what is, where do I fit? Maybe you're trying to put one foot into the church and you're not quite sure whether you should be in or not be in. Maybe you've experienced a ton of brokenness and I would just say to you that the goodness and loving kindness of God invites you in to know his mercy and to receive his goodness and there's a seat at the table for you to be part of the people of God. So what do we do with this? Unless you're planning a camping trip, it doesn't necessarily feel like the arrangement of the camp matters that much. But I want to go back to our primary idea because I think it sets us up to see what God's doing beautifully. In God's plan to reveal his rule and reign to an unbelieving world, every one of his people plays a part. But what I want to tell you is that when God moves, 
then it puts you in a place that feels maybe a little bit uncomfortable. So I had a mentor and he would often talk about the, the faith that it takes to be a trapeze artist. Now I need to confess to you, I've never actually seen the trapeze in person. When I was in second grade, we had a coloring contest in school and I won the coloring contest and I got circus tickets. And I'm, I'm like, you're like, I don't know why you're telling me that. It's not a humble brag, it's just the only thing I've ever won and I'm super excited about it. And so I got the tickets and then my parents said that we couldn't go. So I probably will talk to my therapist about that soon. But the reality is, if I had been there, the trapeze would have been terrifying for me. Because the trapeze operates that somebody climbs up on a high pole and any of the bravery or foolishness guides them. And they'll grab one set of bars and the bars will swing close together and they'll swing back. And the goal of the trapeze artist is in some way, shape or form to hurl their body from the one that they're holding on to the other one that's coming. And it doesn't take a lot of faith to grab, I mean, it does take some faith, but it's maybe more foolishness to grab the first bar and hold on to it. And you don't need that much faith anymore when you've grabbed onto the second bar, but when you're in the middle, that's when you need the most faith. Because you can't hold on to both at the same time because it'll pull you apart and injure you. So you gotta let go of one thing to grab the next thing and it takes a ton of faith to do that. And I can imagine that even the people of Israel, that in this moment when the, the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant goes from being in the middle where they wake up every morning and they can see it clearly to being three days journey ahead of them, it's gotta feel like what we've always known we're having to let go of and grab onto something else and it's freaking me out a little bit. But if we are going to be a people that move when God moves, then that means we've got to have the faith even when we don't see all the pieces coming together. We also just have to remember who our God is. That there is not a moment that you are going to step into that he hasn't gone before you and said, I'm already here, come on in. That this is why Moses would say when the ark moved, that let, let the Lord arise and let his enemies be scattered because when God steps into the scene, that he's doing a work for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And so when he invites us to move, the question is, will we move with him? As a church, you guys have the opportunity this fall to celebrate 75 years of a rich history of being a people who have trusted the Lord to move. Back in 1948, a group of people trusted the Lord's move to come to Palo Alto and believe that the Spirit of God and the presence of God could affect Palo Alto and Stanford and the surrounding area. And while the area has changed, the mission has not. To be followers of Jesus in the Silicon Valley means that when the Lord moves, that we move. So the question is, when he does, will we follow? On February 6th, 2004, a great piece of American art was created. It was a song by Switchfoot called Dare You to Move. Some of you are like, that is not a great piece of American art. So Dare You to Move was part of an album called The Beautiful Letdown. And the song that everybody remembers from The Beautiful Letdown is a song called Meant to Live because it had a sick guitar riff and every kid in youth group thought they could play it and most of them couldn't. But the thing about Meant to Live was, was the most popular song, but it was not the best song. Dare You to Move was the best song because it began to speak to a generation to say that God is at work, that God is on the move, that God is doing something. Do you trust him enough to go with him? And while I'm not as gifted musically as John Foreman might be, I can echo his challenge that 
Peninsula Bible Church, that God is on the move, that he is at work, that he is changing the world around you. I understand that what most of what you hear as believers is that we are this fragile minority, that if we're not careful that the world is gonna take us over, but I know that the church has been the most strong when the world seems like it's the most dark, which means that God is getting ready to be on the move, and he may not just be centered in this place, but might get out in front of us, and when he moves, will we play our part like spontaneous order and move with him? Because what he called us to 75 years ago has not changed, even if the street names and those who live on them have. But it's gonna be a call for us to trust him as he goes before us. And then let me say this. Maybe you're here and you haven't trusted Jesus. And the move that he's inviting you into is not an organizational move, but it's the spontaneous order of being under his mercy that instead of walking as you want to, that now you're ruled by the way that he leads you. And all I can tell you is that his goodness and loving kindness, when it appears, it, it will transform you that you don't have to worry about how do I make up for all the mistakes of my past because he's not just washing you to be a, a clean version of your old brokenness, but instead he is making you a brand new thing by his spirit and he is making you his. And maybe the thing that you've got to enter into is daring to trust his kindness as you submit your life to him. I just believe whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, or whether you are just outside the camp of his grace, that he's on the move around us and in us. And like a moment of spontaneous order, when we fall in line with the way that the Lord's moving, there's something beautiful that we get to see that the world has not known. The question is, will you move with him? Let me pray. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are a good and right king, that when you reveal your rule and reign, that you're inviting us saying, come play. I have a part for you to take in showing the world what it looks like to be um, submitted to me, to walking before me and walking together with others. And so Lord, would you, would you do that in your church? Would we be a people who are sensitive to the way that you're moving and in, in such glad submission that we're chasing after the way that you're going because we wanna be submitted to you? What I've said it multiple times in the message, I'll say it again, this is a high water moment for the book of Numbers. From here on out, we're gonna see a brokenness and rebellion. We're gonna see them complain and grumble. We're gonna see them turn against Moses. We're gonna see them reject entering into the promised land. Would that not be true of us? That Lord, if you move, would it be like the swinging of the Millennium Bridge where it forces us to walk together instead of us walking on our own? Would you be the force that brings us into order as we follow you? And then Lord, for the person watching online, for the person in the room who maybe doesn't know you and doesn't know your people, would they like Hobab be invited in to know your goodness, to trust you as you move on their heart? Lord, you are good and we trust that goodness. It's in your matchless name I pray, amen.